0: Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at coreanesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back
1: to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner. Today, we wanna have another shorter discussion discussing OB topics. Specifically today, we wanna go into amniotic fluid and the emboli that can result in that. Sometimes we have patients that can have an embolism from the amniotic fluid. This is obviously a scenario that you do not want to have happen. It's just a terrible situation all around. We're going to spend the majority of our time talking about that, and we'll go slightly into preeclampsia and eclampsia and how our anesthetic plan will be altered in those patients as well. So Tanner, do you just want to start us off here with the overview of what the amniotic fluid is and its purpose?
0: Yeah, so this is just real quick here. The purpose of the amniotic fluid is to cushion the baby. Last episode, we talked about some of the complications that you can see with your fetal heart rate monitoring. And one of those was if you had decreased amniotic fluid, there wasn't enough fluid in the uterus to give the baby enough buoyancy or area to move around. And so you could have some compression on the cord. And so basically the amniotic fluid is going to again, provide cushion for the baby. Also, will collect the waste products of the baby. So at the very beginning, the amniotic fluid is going to be made from the plasma of the mom and the baby till about 20 weeks. And then after that, the baby's going to contribute through the urine that it makes. And then there's also be some more fluids that will cross over from the placenta that will make up the amniotic fluid. But basically, all of this, again, is just to cushion the baby, keep the baby at a controlled temperature, And make sure that the baby is in a suitable environment there in the uterus. Right. And so,
1: as the baby continues to develop here and we get closer to delivery, there's some complications that can occur, especially when the amniotic fluid gets into the maternal circulation. This can happen from a number of risk factors older patients, eclamptic patients, patients that we've induced that have not gone into natural labor, but they've been induced to go into labor any membranes that get ruptured, patients that are in a C-section, any abnormal anatomy with the placenta, any of these risk factors place the patient at risk for getting amniotic fluid into their circulation. Why is this a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because the maternal immune system basically gets activated as a result of the cells from the fetal tissue getting into the mom. So the the baby's tissues have antigens on them, and these antigens are what cause the immune system to be activated and so heightened. And as a result, the mom's body actually has this vasoactive response to it, and the body releases a substantial amount of these procoagulant substances that result in the mom having a DIC picture and then also in a complete immune reaction such as ARDS that we can see as well on a chest x-ray. The problem is there's no real definitive diagnosis to say, yes, you had a amniotic fluid embolism. Really, the only way that we diagnose this is through process of elimination from the other complications that we can see. So if we rule out other complications that can occur during the delivery process, then we end up saying that, yes, we have an amniotic fluid embolism. So there's really no definitive thing that tells us that we actually have this embolism
0: occur. A lot of things will look very similar, which is what makes this really complicated. So for instance, the patient could be experiencing an MI or a PE Sepsis looks really close to this. We'll talk about some of the mediators that are released because of this reaction, but sepsis is a pretty close picture. Also, venous air embolisms will look similar or even anaphylaxis. And so, you know, throughout the different medications that we're giving, you're always thinking in the back of your mind, a possible anaphylactic picture. And so this is something that you're going to have to kind of weed through and eliminate the different differential diagnoses before you arrive to the conclusion of the amniotic fluid embolism. So, like I just mentioned, some of the things that are going to be released when the amniotic fluid gets into the maternal circulation, you'll have serotonin, which is released. It's going to be a very potent pulmonary vasoconstrictor. This will cause pulmonary hypertension, which will then eventually lead to right-sided heart failure. You will have a release of thromboxane, which is going to activate the clot cascade, which as Cole mentioned, you have a basically a DIC picture here. It also is a vasoconstrictor. You will have prostaglandins, leukotrienes. All of these are just inflammatory mediators that will impact this picture. And so as you're going through the different differential diagnoses, there's four main things that need to be present in order to classify the situation as an amniotic fluid embolism. First of all, you need to have a sudden onset of cardiopulmonary arrest or hypotension with respiratory compromise. You need to have documented DIC. You need to be in labor or within 30 minutes of delivery, and then you also need to have no fever. So that's kind of where it splits from a sepsis picture is that you will not have a fever here, whereas these other things you could possibly see with a septic patient. Right. And as Tanner
1: was saying, this is really immediately within 30 minutes of the delivery or even during the actual labor. And so this patient may present with a seizure all of a sudden, very shortness of breath, May have that sense of doom and you're trying to figure out okay what's going on here uh, there's, there's several different causes as tanner talked about that can be differential diagnosis so some of the labs that are going to be altered in the amniotic fluid embolism compared to other differential diagnosis is going to be an elevated d-dimer again this is because of that dic picture that we're getting into they're going to have low fibrinogen thrombocytopenia an elevated H&H, and hypoxemia. The big one is hypoxemia on an ABG blood gas simply because they're not getting that oxygen in to the rest of their body. Checked sex ray is gonna show a lot of bilateral infiltrates. These patients are gonna have a lot of difficulty getting oxygen then into their lungs and diffused across into their bloodstream to get to the rest of the body. And they're, they're gonna be very hypoxic as a result from this. Once the team has ruled out other differential diagnoses and suspects an amniotic fluid embolism, there's some different steps that we follow to treat this. Management is first and foremost from anesthetic standpoint is to secure an airway. If the patient has coded, then you want to obviously start CPR, put in an art line, put in a CVP. These patients can start hemorrhaging. There's a very high percentage of these patients that hemorrhage because of that DIC picture. As a result, you're going to initiate a massive transfusion protocol. And again, depending on where you're located and what your facility's protocol is, this will, will vary in the amount of red blood cells, the platelets to fresh frozen plasma that you're giving, but you're going to initiate that transfusion protocol. You want to get the baby out as soon as possible, especially if the mom is coated. we're not getting oxygen to the baby. We want to get the baby out right away to increase the likelihood of that baby surviving through this process. Another thing you want to give if they're very hypotensive, we want to get that blood pressure up, giving fluids, giving vasopressors, giving calcium to try to protect the cardiogenic cells, really anything we can do to either prevent the mom from coding if she has not coded yet or going through the Code Blue protocol and the steps that we'd go through with that if she has already coded. But again, our our big goal here is to get that baby out as soon as possible, get an airway and then go through the Code
0: Blue as we would. An easy way to remember this is the AOK protocol. This is something that is off-label but is commonly used to, for treatment of the aminotic fluid embolism. A stands for atropine, O stands for ondansetron or Zofran, and then K stands for ketorolac or Toradol. The reason behind this, go back to what we are seeing in the first place with this. You're seeing the release of these different inflammatory modulators as well as serotonin. Serotonin is going to cause a vagal response. And so that is part of the reason that we give atropine to try to prevent that. Again, you're going to see this profound hypoxemia because of your decreased blood pressure. those right-sided heart failure, pulmonary hypertension. All that's going to wrap together to cause the decreased oxygenation. And so we're trying to basically correct that. So if we can give the atropine, that will try to combat the serotonin causing this bagel response. The Zofran is going to antagonize the 5-HT3 receptors, which is in your heart and lung. That is going to antagonize the vagal response as well. So, that'll attack it from a different angle. And then the Toradol that you're going to give, that's going to inhibit the prostaglandins and the production of thromboxane. This will stop the coagulation cascade from occurring again. These patients will be at risk for DIC. So, attacking it from those three different angles with the atropine, with the Zofram, and then also with the Toradol. This is the standardized treatment after you've done the things like Coles mentioned, where you've secured an airway. Obviously, if the mother is coding all ACLS and do those types of things, you're always trying to get the baby out as soon as possible. But then moving forward, trying to kind of right the ship and treat the things that are causing this problem in the first place, use the AOK protocol, to treat the mother.
1: Awesome. So, we want to spend the last couple minutes here just to discuss preeclampsia and eclampsia very quickly. Preeclampsia presents in these patients as three common symptoms: hypertension, protein in the urine, and edema. The edema and protein in the urine result from the glomerulus has a breakdown in its capillary membranes and allows proteins to get into the urine. So you're going to see that protein in the urine form and you lose the oncotic pressure from those proteins. So the rest of the body loses its oncotic pressure in the vascular membrane and the vascular permeability increases as well and you have edema formed throughout the body. Hypertension develops based on the theory that the placenta usually makes an even amount of two hormones that is thromboxane and prostacyclin. And these two hormones balance the amount of basal constriction the amount of blood flow through the uterus, the amount of platelet aggregation that occurs. And if these two hormones get off balance, you're going to have a shift in one way or the other. The theory here in preeclamptic patients is that prostacycline is less than the amount of thromboxane that is being made. And this extra thromboxane is going to cause an increase in platelet aggregation, a decrease in uterine blood flow, and an increase in vasoconstriction, which is really why we get that hypertension effect. The way we treat this Ultimately, it's just in the pregnancy and get the baby delivered. There's really no way to cure this during the pregnancy until we deliver the baby, but we can treat and try to manage the symptoms during the course of the pregnancy until the baby is fit enough to survive. What we can do is give antihypertensives to the mom. This really is made to decrease the risk of harm to the baby from a decreased blood flow through the uterus, decrease any cerebrovascular accidents that can occur from that elevated hypertension, decrease the risk of MI from occurring. We can give anything from a beta law, calcium channel blockers, hydrolyzing, lots of different medications here to treat this. But again, we're just managing the symptoms and trying to prevent worse outcomes to the mom and the baby rather than actually curing the problem. The the only way to cure the problem is to end the pregnancy and deliver the baby. The separation between preeclampsia and eclampsia is the idea that in eclamptic patients, they have the seizures that come into effect here and also thrombocytopenia. As a result, additional treatment for eclamptic patients is going to include magnesium sulfate to decrease the risk of having seizures occur. And lastly, just how this changes our anesthetic plan. If a patient comes in with preeclampsia or eclampsia, we're going to have that blood pressure already being elevated, and we're going to have to alter our anesthetic plan slightly to affect that. What I mean is that, if you recall, when we give a spinal or an epidural, you often will see a decrease in blood pressure after that. This will actually be nice in this patient, being hypertensive to begin with, and we won't have to worry as much about becoming hypotensive and decreasing that blood flow to the baby with the amount of oxygen the baby can get. If we're giving magnesium for an eclamptic patient, just know that this relaxes the uterus, so it's going to be an increased risk of having hemorrhage after delivery. Also, eclamptic patients are more at risk of having a difficult airway. We've already discussed this in previous talks about how to go about intubating these patients, the steps that you would use simply because of the engorgement in the back of the mouth that decreases the view that we can have and the difficulty that it is to intubate these patients. So just keep in mind, if you have a patient that is eclamptic or preeclamptic coming in, it is going to slightly alter our anesthetic plan just from the idea that the blood pressure is already high. It's not going to drop as much, hopefully. If it does drop, keep in mind that patients that are used to this higher blood pressure, we don't want to drop in more than 20% below that baseline, as well as if we're relaxing the uterus with the magnesium, just be aware of the effects that you can have after delivery in terms of hemorrhaging and the processes that we're going to go through with
0: that. Perfect. Well, like we said, this is just a quick episode. We wanted to touch on the amniotic fluid embolism and then here at the end, just quickly go over preeclampsia and eclampsia. Again, we hope that these shorter OB episodes are helpful for you. If you have any more questions, please feel free to reach out to us and we'll catch you on the next episode.